through the years, I have really come to comprehend and understand the truth of the statement that opposites attract. And perhaps there is no greater manifestation of this truth between married couples than in the area of communication. I'm going to explain this in a minute. But through the years, I have found, as I used to test young couples before marriage, in the majority of marriages, when one spouse is a spendthrift, the other is frugal. Uh, When one is cold at 80-degree temperature, the other feels hot at 50-degree temperature. When one is verbal, the other is not. And when it comes to communication, you're going to find that when the verbal spouse wants to express thoughts in words, because I'm going to tell you in a minute, it's not always expressed in words, but when they want to express them in words, the other person clamps up. And perhaps this is the one trait that causes a whole lot of heartburn. Psychologists call this a total breakdown in communication in marriage. And it's the cause of many of breakups in marriage. And yet, it should not be. And that is why I kept this to the last. It's the third on these three foundational stones in the series of messages we're calling it Crafted, Marriage God's Way. And we saw the very first foundation stone is selflessness. The second foundational stone we saw forgiveness. And I looked with you in the last message about the anatomy of forgiveness. And today we come to what I call conversation or conversing in marriage. Let me tell you why I don't like the word communication. This is a personal quirkiness on my part. I don't like to use the word communication simply because it's overused. You know what I mean? It's a catch-all phrase now, because it's the very word itself sometimes denotes uh, I'm imparting information to the other person who's receiving it. And that is why I prefer the word conversation or conversing. If you look closely at any blessed marriage, you're going to find that both husband and wife are able to converse with each other, even at times without words. This conversing may vary from couple to couple. So there's no cookie cutter here. This conversing takes different form. But the reason for their ability to converse with each other is what I talked about in the very first message, when each spouse studied their spouse. Uh, when each spouse learned the other spouse's language of love, uh, when each spouse went to the trouble of understanding how the other one thinks and feels. Remember when I talked about studying your spouse like you're going to be studying for an exam? Remember that? <laughs> when good conversation takes place, it is an indication that both spouses have done their homework, and they're going to pass their exam. That is, speaking and listening, not just one way or the other. Not only that, but they have spent energy in speaking and energy in listening. I also want to emphasize what I have been saying in the last two messages, and I want to emphasize it for the third time 
So I don't want false guilt or somebody gets sitting down and saying, you know, what about this and what about that? I have said, and I repeat, that when the sin of adultery or abuse is continuous, nonstop, no repentance, no fruit of repentance, that is, according to the Word of God, is a marriage killer. And so I want to make sure that you understand me and you heard me correctly. But today I want to focus on conversation because it can be marriage saver. I said it can be. Did you get that? It can be. <laughs> I was reflecting on the different ways that husbands and wives communicate and they converse with each other, and I thought of what this man told me years ago. He said, you know, my wife and I had words last night. Unfortunately, I didn't get to use mine. <laughs> I actually love it when some creative wives who want to get their non-responding husbands to say what they want them to say. This particular creative woman who's trying to get her husband to say something nice about her, and he kind of doesn't, and, and she finally said to him, she said, Bruce, <laughs> do you think my hair is the prettiest you've ever seen? Uh-huh. Do you think that I have a perfect figure? Ah, oh, you bet. Uh, do you think my lips like rubies? Absolutely. Do you think my teeth like pearls? I'll say. And then she said, oh, Bruce, you say the nicest things. <laughs> what Elizabeth and I are going to share, especially with young couples, with children, we want to share with you three things that we have discovered in our lives that can be a conversation killer, a conversation destroyer, and impacts the power of conversation which must take place in a marriage. And they all start with the letter C. It's calendar, children, and conflict. I'm going to talk about calendar and a little bit about children, but then I will have the one who has done a marvelous job with children to speak. What do I mean by calendar? Please listen carefully. Young moms and dads, I want to tell you, as God my witness, and you've probably heard me say this before, I stand in awe, I stand in awe of how young couples are running haggard. I don't know how they cope, honestly. I mean, their schedule is wall-to-wall -wall with activities, and they're running around from this to that to the other things. And if the mother is working outside of the home— you add long hours of work, running errands, driving children from one activity to another, driving children from one sport to another, and it all seems to be endless. As I watch, I am amazed at how they even cope. I just read about a statistic that 61% of Americans would trade money for time. We are so stretched, particularly among young couples. And all of these activities leave very precious little time for husbands and wives to have meaningful conversation. Many marriages appear to be healthy on the surface, but they may be because um, this couple, uh, you know, have ceased to converse, and they're contented with where they are. Uh, there are some 
who have confused busyness and activities with happiness. The truth is there are many couples who found themselves to be so drained of energy. They are so emotionally exhausted. They never schedule time out for themselves, just for the two of them. They never schedule time just for conversation between them. Uh, They reserve no time for talking and listening and reacting and reacting to each other. They never set aside time where they actually exchange some thoughts and, yes, feelings. You see, I'm not against feelings. Feelings are important. I know I'm surprising some of you. (laughs) They never set aside a time of unhurried time to focus on each other. And the fact is, without that healthy conversation, and again, I don't mean just in words, but in every aspect of it, there are going to be problems. I'm going to get back to this at the end of the message. So, calendar, if it is not managed rightly, correctly, if it is not planned well with a time in the middle for conversation with each other alone, it raises a problem. Secondly, children especially small children. It's not a secret or a surprise to anybody who knows me. I love children. I really do. I love the children in this church. I cherished and loved my children and my grandchildren. But there can be no doubt that children can be one of the most important results of intimacy in marriage. I want to emphasize this. But the truth is, small children can be, as I said, can be one of the biggest hindrances in intimacy and conversation in marriage. Children bring some of the greatest blessings that you can ever imagine in marriage, and yet they also bring one of the great responsibilities in marriage. And for the first 18 years of their lives, they are absolutely thoroughly dependent on their parents for substance and for support. But many parents, including your pastor, made the mistake of thinking that children must come first in a marriage relationship. Hear me right, please, on this one. Kids are very innocent, and they do not know their proper role in the family. And by nature, kids think that the world revolves around them. In fact, they think that their parents' world revolves around them. And they need to be trained that the spouse is number one in their life, not the children. But there's more. Security in children's lives stems from seeing that daddy is mommy's number one priority and that mommy is daddy's number one priority. But when parents allow their children to be the decision-makers in the home, when they grow up, they grow up not understanding boundaries. Many years ago, I remember hearing Billy Graham in person, and Billy Graham told this story about a salesman who went around knocking on doors, and it was one of those homes where the 10-year-old was running the house. And so when the salesman knocked on the door, and the 10-year-old opened the door, and, and the salesman said, can I speak to the master of the house? He said, you are talking to him. <laughs> Perhaps this is why Elizabeth and I 
will focus on this more than the others, this issue of children today, because like many young couples, we made the mistake, as I said, of placing our children first until God so graciously opened our eyes in time to take corrective actions. I often hear parents say, we want to do what our children want to do. We want to go where our children want to go. Uh, We want to please our children. And to be quite honest, now that I'm older and wiser, I wince. I really do. And in a minute, Elizabeth will come up and share her testimony on this subject, but I want to share mine first, and it's a very small part. In the early 80s, when our children were very young, like many young parents, we wanted to be good parents. It's wonderful. And we began to focus all of our attention not on each other, but we placed them squarely on our children. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. Don't misunderstand me. Taking very good care of the kids is of vital importance. I am not minimizing that at all. But I want to confess that in that area, especially me, I am what you call a Jewish mother. (laughs) And I mean that as an absolute compliment. Trust me. I mean, I am really a Jewish mother. Back in the 80s, I heard a preacher who was telling this about his story, his own life. He said, you know, he grew up in New York and had Italian family. And uh, his best friend was a Jewish boy. And he said, when I was growing up, he said, I leave home, and my Italian mother says to me, Tony, don't forget your lunch. But he said, go over there, the Finkelsteins, and then pick up Joe. And he said, his Jewish mother says, Joe, don't forget your books. He said, so the Italians grow up to be fatter, and the Jewish kids grow up to be smarter. The truth is, I, as a parent, am both a Jewish mother and Italian mother. (laughs) Again, I want to emphasize that loving and taking care of the children is of uttermost importance. I'm not minimizing that. Please understand. When they helpless babes, they're totally dependent on you. And then when they're elementary school and they need help with their homework, and then when they go through the tough years of teen years and they need loving counsel and understanding— And all of that takes time, and it takes attention away from the spouse. Now, the question is, how do you create a balance? How do you create a balance? Well, since I already told you I'm both Jewish and and Italian, I don't have much balance. I really do. I struggle for balance. But the one who is truly a balanced person, the most balanced person I know, is going to come up. And again, I just want to thank her for letting me do this. This is not easy for her, and she agreed to do it. Thank you. He's my best friend and my best spiritual counselor. I don't know what I'd do without him. Okay, Um, I'm directing this mainly to you young mums, but I want to acknowledge to begin with that without the transforming power of the Lord 
in my life, I wouldn't be here standing before you. I am fully aware of my own weaknesses, but fully trust in the Lord who is able to take these words and I pray that it will be used for his glory. Michael mentioned the 1980s. It was during that period we had three children between the ages of four and seven. And we were involved in a really hectic schedule. Not only that, he was heading up a international ministry which involved four overseas trips a year, and each trip was at least two weeks. You know, I was busy. I don't know that I did a really good job at it, but um, I was kept busy maintaining the home. I was doing the usual, you know, keeping food on the table, laundry, juggling carpool, um, supervising homework. Don't think that was too successful. After school activities and also attempting to be the disciplinarian. More often than not, one of the three kids would be sick. And, you know, the pressures seem to be on me and on all of us. And the saying goes, the squeaky wheel is the one that gets the attention. And for me, it was my children. It's not to say they demanded the attention, because in actual fact, they didn't. They were great kids. But over time, I realized they had become my focus. There was also the regular interruption of the transitioning. You know, when Michael was gone, I sort of took the leadership role, took control of all aspects of the family. And then, of course, when he would come back, I was very relieved to hand over the reins. But it kind of created a little tension. All of this did not happen overnight. It was building up gradually over the years. We were actually, if you think about it, on two different tracks. And we'd lost the focus of serving each other in marriage, of being selfless. And, you know, it was just totally not right. And it wasn't until we had reached a point of crisis in our marriage that the Lord graciously revealed to both of us um, that we had failed to build each other up in communication. And it was obvious, certainly to me, but I think to both of us, that we needed to take radical steps. So 
For me, I was convinced it wasn't just a matter of saying I'm sorry, but it's what the Bible talks about, repentance. And, you know, when you repent, you do an about-face. So we purposed in our hearts with the strength of the Lord that we would set aside each week for building time. That's the issue, time, to build up our relationship. And then two or three times during the year, we'd go away. It's so easy to fall into this pattern of life as a mother because obviously you're responsible for all their basic needs for the nurturing. The problem is when you place these above what really should be the first priority and that's looking to the best interests of your mate. Today, it's even a greater problem because of all our little gadgets. And I see it for young women, the sort of desire to produce the perfect child, the perfect family. Um, You know, Pinterest and Facebook have really done us a disservice. So... um, But it's out there. And of course, Satan, the enemy of our soul. The oldest trick. He is able to use what is a good thing. You know, rearing your children to be God-fearing, responsible adults. And he twists it for his own evil purposes. My prayer for all of you is that the Holy Spirit will reveal to you those areas in your relationship that need to be changed, that need to be restored, the little idols perhaps you've created will be torn down, that you will actually purpose to take time to work on that relationship with you, mate. God bless you. Thank you, honey. I'm grateful to the Lord for that wake-up call back in 1982-83. And we saw later, as we help other young couples, that when they do not get that wake-up call in time, when the last child leaves home, the husband and wife discover that they have nothing in common. The kids were the only subject of their conversation. The kids were only subject of their planning. The kids were the only subject of their time and energy and effort. And so, when they become empty nesters, they discover that they have nothing to talk about. I pray to God that this will change. I've seen it again and again and again, and that's why Elizabeth said that when we speak to young moms and dads, we strongly urge them that they must get away from their children for a time alone without the children. 
And even when you're away, the temptation at times is that the conversation would veer toward the subject of children, but then you have to really stop and intentionally change the subject. Develop common interests for both of you. As an aside, uh, when we used to leave home, and again, the kids between, you know, seven, eight, and nine, and, and four or five, and we had no grandparents, no relatives in, in this city or in, in this country, and, and so we relied on babysitters. And, and many a times when we leave home uh, to get away for a few days, the kids will cry their eyes out and uh, they tear your heart. And uh, we discovered later that when we turned the corner, literally they forgot all about us. <laughs> And then we learned later that kids need a break from mom and dad as much as mom and dad needs a break from the kids. Furthermore, they will really, really appreciate you far more when you come back. (laughs) Calendar, children, finally, conflict. More to the point, fear of conflict. Listen carefully. Fear of conflict. One of the great fallacies says that good marriages do not have any conflicts, or that conflicts are bad for marriage. Let me remind you of what I said in the first message, that in our home, we're too spiritual to call it conflicts or arguments, so we call it vigorous discussion. But hear me right on this one. Conflict is neutral. If you handle conflict wisely, they will lead to greater joy and intimacy. If conflicts are handled foolishly, they will lead to further isolation. And I can tell you with a certain degree of certainty (laughs) that if a husband and wife never have any conflicts at all, chances are they are not conversing with each other. Here's my personal advice for what is worth. If you make conflict to be your ally, you will both learn to grow in leaps and bounds. Why do I say this? Because in most conflict avoidance situations, you will find that one or both are stuffing their emotions and their feelings into that deep sock that's inside all of us. And you don't need me to tell you that this is not very healthy. So what's the answer? First, you learn how your wife or your husband is wired. Learn how your spouse is wired. We're all wired differently. Often you're going to find that one spouse, mostly men, are problem solvers. And women are peacemakers. With a wife and two daughters in the house, I learned the painful way that they're not interested in problem-solving. And so when one of our daughters would come back, and what do I do? I immediately, the problem-solver in me, I said, oh, here's what you need to do. You need to do this, you need to do this, you need to do this. It gets worse. I said, but I'm tired to help. And finally, my balanced wife said to me, they don't want you to solve their problem. They want you to listen. Oh, got it. I'm giving you this freebie on the house. I hope it will help you. (laughs) Now, the husband wants to solve problems, and 
and sometimes in, uh, the opposite. I mean, it's not often the case, but it's just generally speaking. And, uh, but in, in all of these things, there are exceptions. Here's what both should do about conflict. Listen to me very carefully. Three things again. First of all, agree to identify the conflict issue, the points of conflict. Identify them. You can write them down if you want to. Secondly, discuss together, come in agreement on how you should deal with them. And then develop a procedure. That just sounds like a business, but I really it's much simpler than that. Develop a procedure about how you're going to do this. Then absolutely determine to deal with those conflicts as soon as they arise. But before you do all these three things, if you haven't already learned to pray together, hold hands and start praying together. It is the most spiritual intimacy that I can recommend. Praying together. Invite God into the situation. Pray confessing your sins, not your spouse's sin. Are you with me? All right? Pray surrendering your agenda, not, dear Lord, help my spouse to surrender their agenda. No, no, yours. Pray for God to reveal to you your own inadequacies, your own weaknesses, your own failures. And then pray for the love of God to be poured into your hearts toward your spouse. As I conclude, I'm always conscious of the fact that somebody here might say, Michael, in our marriage, conversation doesn't even exist. Or, in our marriage, our conversation has stopped a long time ago. Wherever you are, nothing is impossible with you. And we, we believe that, we sing that, we read that in the Scripture, but then we don't practice it or appropriate it. Wherever you are, you can jumpstart the conversation in marriage. Amen? Amen. You can jumpstart at any point. Think of those romantic times when you were dating. That helps. Uh, Think of the tender moments that you had in the early days in marriage. Then make some strange-sounding words such as telling your spouse that he or she is God's gift to you. Tell your spouse how much you really love them. Above all, don't forget that there are hundreds of ways by which you can converse even more than verbally. A smile. It may crack your cheeks, but do it. The adoring look. Serve the need of your spouse. Pray something important to them, not to you. Pray something important to him or her. And if you haven't read Gary Chaplin's book, The Five Love Languages, I recommend you read it. Try to find out your spouse's love language and speak that language, not yours. We all love to speak our language. I know that having crossed languages, it's hard to practice speaking another language. But you can under the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, He is the one who spoke 
our love language when He left the glories of heaven and came and identified with us. He identified with our deepest longing, seeing that our deepest need and our deepest longing is to know that we are forgiven, healed, and restored. He did exactly that on the cross. Uh, Every time you feel that you're angry or rejected or lonely, you will hear in His Word, the Word that was authored by His Spirit, that He would say to you, and you hear Him over and over again, saying, you're loved by me, that you'll never be rejected by me. I am always with you. You are never alone with me. I love you. I can meet you at every point of your need. My everlasting arms are underneath. My plans for you are for good and not evil. You are engraved on the palms of my hands. You are carried on my shoulders, and he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. That's our language. He spoke our language, and he said all of this when he hung on that cross and then rose again on the third day. Now, imitate him. Imitate him in your relationship with one another. Will you stand with me, please? Probably this message has reached different people different ways, and whatever the Holy Spirit has brought to you, respond to him. If he convicts you of a sin, repent of it and turn away from it. If he convicts you of failure, let him give you success. If he convicted you with some inadequacies, he is more than able. He is more than able. He is more than able to overrule. If you lost your peace at home, he says, My peace. I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives do I give peace. Let His peace reign on your hearts and in your homes. And then say, Lord Jesus, open my heart, open my life. Let me be what you, not what I want, but what you would have me do. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.